When you're investing, everyone talks about diversification in your portfolio. But how complex does it have to be? Could you just invest in one fund and be done with it? What proportion of professional investors beat of just a passive index? When I was part of the investment banking world, it's never even discussed. I'm pretty sure you'll have heard of Romin, but if you haven't, he runs the personal finance YouTube channel Pension Craft, and he's also the host of his own podcast called Many Happy Returns. He was a former strategist for an investment bank, and he now mainly invests in just one global index fund, just like me. If you look back over the last decade, yeah, the US just blows everyone out of the water. But what people forget is the 1970s when we had a lost decade. How do you see bonds fitting into a person's portfolio? You know, I think bonds are sexy. When I left my job to start my own channel, I knew it was possible because of Romin. He's one of the OG YouTubers in the space. He's an absolute legend. So it was great to finally meet him in person. I got a little bit starstruck, if I'm honest. Now, it is worth mentioning that this conversation happened back in July. So keep that in mind, some of the numbers we mentioned, such as interest rates, they've changed in that time period. One thing that won't change though, is Romin's plans for his new tattoo. 6.5% above inflation for the last 120 years. That's yeah. all I'd have on yeah. my uh, backside. And what you're talking <laughs> On your ass, <laughs> that'd be funny. And then bonds would be on the other cheek. You know? <laughs> 2% less. We just had a conversation then off camera where we were speaking about how picking individual stocks is can be a bit of a mugs game, we say it. <laughs> you know, I subscribe to the mantras of someone like Charlie Munger or Warren Buffett, and they're also quite critical around diversification. You know, could you just explain why you think that the, a normal person should be diversifying or spreading risk? I think it's really about modesty. You know, you have to kind of admit what your limits are. And the thing to remember also is the stats. The stats for professional investors is, let's look at a 10-year global fund, right? What proportion of professional investors beat just a passive index? Turns out that it's something like one in 20. And these are professional investors mm. that have huge resources. They're very dedicated. It's not like they're not trying. It's just that it's a really hard job to do because markets are efficient. You know, If there's any information that gives you an edge, chances are somebody else has already priced that into the into the stock or the bond or whatever it is. So you just have to be realistic and modest about what you can achieve, I think. Just honest. Just look at the stats. Yeah. And and like you say, it's it's about recognizing the skill that's involved from a perspective of these people are full-time professionals doing it in a company with unlimited resources. Do you think that you can beat them from, you know, your two-bed flat in Basingstoke. You know, I think that's uh, that's the kind of, I think everyone comes into it thinking, I'm capable, I can part-time become the best investor in the world, when actually, no, you probably can't. I think that's it. You know, you just got to be honest about what your, your chances are of success. And I think for most people, if you want to have a successful career investing, just ride equity markets up. It's mm. so easy to do and so cheap now to do that you know everyone can do that that's within everyone's reach i think it's really interesting that you said it's important to be modest because I mean, we were doing viewer listeners questions not something that comes naturally to you too. i mean i don't, I don't, I don't even know how to spell, spell the word to be honest um, but like we we're listening to some listeners questions they said why am i when someone said why am i not rich yet and i feel like a lot of people expect to make millions in the stock market or make millions in investing how did you figure out that it's best to be modest. Like when, how long did it take you along your journey? Interesting story that, because, you know, when I was part of the investment banking world, it's never even discussed the possibility that, you know, all these fund managers can't beat the index. It was just assumed. And so I always thought of this once I left it as a kind of cult. It's kind of like a cult of alpha. I don't know if you're aware of the, the two words. Alpha is beating the market. Yeah. Beta is just tracking the market, which you can do very cheaply. So I think of it as the cult of alpha, because you don't know you're in a cult until you leave it and you become kind of deprogrammed, as it were. <laughs> so I left and I kind of started Pension Craft and I came across this report about Spiva, the S&P index versus active report. And that's where I first saw the stats and I just couldn't believe it because all the people, you know, you fly around the world as a strategist, you write research, you speak to the fund managers, they manage trillions and they're super bright, you know, super motivated. They're doing their best. And yet they fail, ninety, you know, something like ninety-five percent of the time for some of these categories of fund. And you just think, you know, what kind of other industry in the world could you fail so often and still get paid? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Why do you think that people continue to to back that industry then? 
I don't know. I think I think a lot of people don't realize what's at stake. I don't think they realize what they're paying their fees for. A lot of people don't realize they're paying fees or how mm. big the fees are. So I think people don't realize the stats. I didn't realize, and I was in the banking industry for so long. So I think that's the problem. And more people are realizing now. I think in the US, for example, lots of people are shifting to passive. That's kind of ahead of where we are in Europe. But in Europe, it's still the case that you kind of trust people and you just assume if you pay a professional and the professional more you service. pay, yeah. it's kind of like Lambo mentality where you think if I pay more for a car, it's going to be better. In finance, it's the other way around. It's kind of like an emperor's new clothes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's sat there going, well, you know, he, he must be good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think there's a, there's a knowledge gap, isn't there as well? And there's an, there's a, you have very... I say it all the time, you get very smart people that stumble across your channel that are like barristers, lawyers, and they go, oh no, I finally get it. And it's like, this person is hyper intelligent, yeah. a doctor, but for some reason they feel that finance is beyond them. And then they're the, probably the kind of people that then go, well, I need to pay a fee. Because if you wanted my services, you would pay a fee. <laughs> you know, if you wanted a doctor, you, you you get it through the NHS, but they're highly skilled and they probably equate their, that to that side, but it's it's actually like saying, no, actually, if you just took a paracetamol, that'll fix all your ills instead. <laughs> well, with medicine, at least, I think it's much harder. Mm. But with, with investment, it's actually pretty easy. Mm. And the simple fact is that equity trundles upwards over time. And once you understand that fact, everything else flows from that. So I think understanding those long-term returns, the base rates, yeah. which is just like the average return that you get for different investments above inflation, understanding and knowing that, it should be a you know, post-it. I was thinking of, you know, my daughter's just got a tattoo. And I was just thinking, if I had a tattoo, what would it be? And I think it would be those base rates, you know, 6.5% above inflation for the last 120 years. That's yeah. what I'd have on yeah. my uh, backside. And what you're talking about is your the, 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 on your ass. <laughs> That'd be funny. And then bonds would be on the other cheek. You know? <laughs> 2% less. Yeah. A little bit of crypto on the nutsack. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> the high risk stuff. <laughs> You'd have the vol of crypto on my nutsack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this conversation's gone wild already. <laughs> so... No, I, I mean, I can subscribe to this and say, you know, but it almost feels counterintuitive, doesn't it? That you could do it cheaper and better than the professionals, okay? And what we want to dig into is is how does someone do that now? Because when they go on to a platform, it's still relatively intimidating. It feels like the funds are written in a language that's for professionals, not for individuals. You mentioned before you only have one investment in, in your portfolio. Can you just talk us through your investing process or strategy at the moment that you have? Yeah, well, I, I would say before I talk about mine is, yeah. is don't copy what I do yeah, because, yeah. because you know, everyone's different. And uh, but, but I will talk about my process. So when I started out, when I was working as an asset allocation strategist, you know, I was paid to decide where to put the money, right? So we'd have a whole economics department. They'd come up with forecasts for growth. We'd have a fixed income strategist. We'd have a gold strategist. You know, we have all these people feeding into our team because we were the kind of, you know, the pinnacle of the research for the whole bank. So our job was to choose where to allocate stuff, right? So we think gold's going to be good this year, or we think European stocks are going to outperform based on all of these facts. But what I realized was, and it was actually a member of my community who said this, I had this really complex portfolio that was just a mirror of what I'd done in the past. And he said, that's a waste of time. Why don't you just put it into just a few funds? And so I made videos about it and I realized, yeah, if I'm going to be allocating for a long period of time, then just buy global equity. That's all I need. And then the decision became, okay, how can I do that most cheaply? Here are the five funds which are the cheapest on the platform, which are global stocks. And I just bought the cheapest one. So, I mean, that's that's how I chose it. Yeah. I know you've also done like recreations of of like funds and stuff on other platforms as well, but you think just an off-the-shelf global fund is suits your purpose and does it recreate what you were doing in the past, were you saying? Were you, were you overcomplicating it? Or? I think so. And I'm not sure that I would have outperformed what I've got. Hmm. You know, I've got a fun portfolio where I do try and beat the market. And I had some great trades, you know, like I bought commodities just in February of 2020 and that went up 80%. But I've had catastrophes. You know, I bought KWeb, which is this like Chinese internet stock um, fund, and that's down about 70. So, you know, I think you can you can try this stuff. You can come up with a thesis for what's going to outperform, but you're usually wrong. Yeah. So, yeah. You're, you're late to the party. Like, you know, like you say, if there's a, there's a lot of smart people that are thinking 10 steps ahead of you and 
you know, Tritax is an example. I thought, oh, they'll probably do well because of the lockdown. They did do well. And then I didn't see them going, doing badly. That's the problem. You know? <laughs> and then they fell off a cliff. So, yeah. But Plenty also of- all the cognitive biases, you know, all yeah. of the stuff like you think, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stick with it because I think it'll turn around mm. and you become emotionally. I was going to say, a lot of you should in, invest yeah. emotionally, right, at any time. Like you should always keep emotions out of your portfolio. It's impossible though, but right? it, I think it's impossible. I, I think I, like for January, 2020, 2020, I bought loads of airlines. I bought Tesla, I bought all these things. And I was like, they're all going to be back up. And a lot of them, like the airlines came back up, but a lot of them like up, back down, like Tesla isn't doing too well for me. So I think, but Tesla, I just, I was like, oh, it's Tesla. And I think there was one Neo, like, which is like a Chinese version of Tesla. And I thought, oh, electric cars, it's the future. And it just didn't perform how I wanted But This is why a global index is so powerful because it's like, if you just buy it every month consistently, you remove any any other rules, any other decision-making. I get people all the time going, should I buy, should I sell? Well, I don't don't have to worry about this because I'm just buying it for the next 20, 30 years. And then I'll consider selling i think you probably come after the teletubbies don't you oh no i remember the teletubbies oh, we're watching teletubbies. Oh, no. do you remember the tubby custard machine yeah, where it had tubby just custard, one yeah. machine one yeah, button so it's just like that it's like the tubby custard machine you just press one button and you get the returns yeah so there's not not much that can go wrong and all of the kind of cognitive biases that come with stocks just don't apply so for example you were talking about tesla the trouble is that we always form narratives around the world and they're so compelling the same as active funds you know if you if you have terry smith talking about how his funds run that kind of thing uh, he's, he runs a really popular active fund in the uk well people buy into that Kathy because Wood was similar Kathy innovation Wood. became innovation like a disruption yeah. and there's a story that goes behind it and a narrative which is really compelling whereas if you just say here's a global fund which goes up that's not quite as compelling hmm. Even if it's tattooed on your backside, you know, you're not, you're not <laughs> going to believe it. And it's not so exciting. Yeah. So I think that's the difference. You know, there's no narrative and there's less that can go wrong. So can we talk then about, so I want you to make me feel better, basically. So there's, <laughs> there's the, glo- the global index play. You bet on the whole world, it keeps turning. But then the American markets have outperformed. They're 65% of the global market anyway. And you can buy them for probably a quarter of the price that you could buy a global index. Why not just buy the S&P 500? You can do, but the thing is, if you go back in time and look at the proportion of time the US has outperformed since 1970, and MSCI publishes indices for this, so you can figure it out. They're one of the companies that tracks it. That's one I was looking at them for my like, fund. Like, yeah, like S&P, MSCI, yeah. yep. But they show that it outperforms about 55% of the years since then. So there just are many half. years. Yeah, just over half. So uh, if you look back over the last decade, yeah. The US just blows everyone out of the water. But what people forget is the 1970s when we had a lost decade or the 2000s when we had a lost decade and the rest of the world outperformed. So I think it's always good to have that longer term perspective because it's easy to anchor based on recent history, but you've really got to have that long-term perspective. And if you do, you realize that when the US is expensive, like it was in 2000, then that's usually a recipe for underperformance. You can't time it based on that, but if a lot of the pension graphs, people in our community, they're actually thinking about dialing down their US allocation because of this. So they, instead of having just a global equity fund, they've kind of got, you know, like regional allocation. Oh, and they're getting a bit stuck. Exactly. It's a bit, yeah. And, and yeah. it's kind of timing as well. Yeah. And But I didn't do it. And because every time I try to be clever, it goes wrong. So I've just kind of, I've got to the point in life where I just thought, no, I'll just keep it simple. Yeah. And that, that's, that's all I do. And you know, you might get, you might not get 9% or you might yeah. get seven and I'm yeah. not really that bothered as long as it beats inflation. Well, the thing is, you're so young. So yeah. for you, if there's a volatile period or if the market crashes or if there's a catastrophe for you, it's amazing because mm. you're going to be drip feeding through that period and it'll just boost your returns long term. So both of you have got the superpower when it comes to investing, which is time. Yeah. And there's not a lot that could go wrong as long as you just keep allocating. Don't sell when markets fall. Don't get overexcited when there's a when there's a rally and dial up your risk. You just don't need to. It made me feel better. I don't know about you. <laughs> well, you're older than me, mate. So you got left of the superpower. <laughs> only one year. Only one year. Stop it's going to be a big year, though. <laughs> there's no grey hair either. Yeah, no grey hair. But you didn't think Thicker we were old enough to watch the Teletubbies. I mean, <laughs> I was too old to watch the Teletubbies. So we're, 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 push, we're pushing. I'm, I'm the wrong side of 35 now. Oh, so no. Are we? Am I? I'm 34. I can't even remember. <laughs> so the, I guess... What I want to look at now then is, I think 
you come into it, you want to invest. And then you, you, we, I sit here, I say, all I buy is a global index and I got a little bit of play money. You say the same. Is that really enough? Like how many funds should people have in, in their portfolios? I don't think there is a hard and fast number. I think it's good to understand all the moving parts of your portfolio. So remember that when you complicate things, it just makes it more breakable. And what breaks it is your behavior. So just having something you can understand is very important. And my rule was that I had to memorize all of the funds that I owned and be able to recite them from memory. And so that limited me to about five funds. So for me, you know, that was a limitation. Other people I know, they can do like, 20, 30 funds, but I just wanted to keep it as simple as possible. But now that you can buy global funds, you can literally buy all the bonds in the world, all the stocks in the world, pretty much, with just two funds. Mm -hmm. So you don't need that many to be diversified. Or you can buy a diversified commodity fund, which gives you exposure to lots of commodities. So I think it's easy now to have these globally diversified portfolios very cheaply, and you don't need more than about five different funds in your in your portfolio. If you want to have more, that's absolutely fine. But just remember that you've got to manage it and rebalance it. And that's not easy. And the more moving parts you've got, the more complex it gets. Do you keep do you keep your the big fund you have? Do you have it in one platform or do you have it in different platforms? Just one platform. Just one platform. And this is another question I often get, which is if I put it all on one platform, and some of the people I speak to have very large investments like very large. And um, so they're worried that the platform will go down. Yeah. But fortunately in the UK, we're so heavily regulated. You know, the platforms have to keep their money, firm money, separate from client money. Cash rules. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so that way you can be fairly sure that if it does go down, it's unlikely that they'll have to sell your assets in order to pay off their creditors. I think there were some precedents for that in the UK. There was Beaufort Securities where yeah. it went down, but in the end they didn't have to use client funds. But I, I, I don't worry about that. So I just keep it on one platform and on it's platform. simple. I, one thing, we had the financial services compensation scheme come here and they, they were very reassuring, you know, in, in that sense of like the security and the bigger picture. One thing I'd like to ask then is, so we actually got a question from a member of the audience. Daniel, he's 21. Well done, Daniel, first of all, for being on this. He basically says, I've got an ICER and a SIP. I've got a global fund in both. Does that make sense to have the same fund in both vehicles? The thing to remember is, why are you saving? So what's the horizon for the money you'll be investing? Now, sometimes people put money into their ISA because you can take it out anytime you want. They put money into there, which they'll need, like for, I don't know, could be a wedding, could be to buy, could be money for a holiday. But if it's short term, you don't want to put money into equity. So five years or less, equity is quite crashy. So you probably want to keep it in something much lower risk, money market fund, short duration government bonds, that kind of thing. So it really depends why you're investing and when you need the money. For a SIP, obviously, he can't touch it till he's 55. Mm. So you definitely want a lot of equity in there, probably, you know, because he'll want that high return. But, it, you know, I'd ask the question, the next question would be, you know, what are you investing it for, Daniel? Mm. So let's say he came around and said, both are for 20-year time horizons. I would like to retire early using an ISA and have a SIP kick in in retirement. Would you feel comfortable having the same investment in both platforms, I think is what he's alluding to, because he's basically like, I've just got a global all cap in both. Is that, the, is that right? Should I be putting all my chips on the same? I think so. I think because it gives you the same exposure. Because often what people do is they buy two different funds, like two different life strategy funds or a target retirement fund and a life strategy fund from Vanguard. But they're almost identical if you mm. plot the returns. Mm. And this is the point. You know, you've got to understand the correlation between the things you invest in. Do they move up and down together in price? Do they have the same contents? Because if they do, there's no point in buying more of the same thing. But in his case, if, if, the, if it's for the same purpose, you invest in the same thing. So that's, that's, that's the important thing. You work back from your goals and you work back from goal to asset allocation. Yeah. So that's the way it works. A common one I see is people will say, I've got a global index, but I've also bought the S&P 500 and then I've bought the S&P 500 green like electric cars. I'm like, you, you're placing a lot of chips on the American market by doing that. And I don't think people realize the, the allocation, as you say. How would people go about working that out? Do you know any simple ways to do it? Um, I mean, one way to do it is to go back in time to a market crash and just look at the returns. Did they crash together? And if the answer is yes, 
you're not just look at the chart and yeah. look at look at March 2020 and see yeah. what happened. Yeah, and if they both went down at the same time, then clearly not diversified. Whereas if it's something that kind of held its value and didn't crash as the stocks fell, well, clearly that would be that would be a good hedge. But are you looking to hedge returns in a? For me, I don't care if it drops because of my age and investing time horizon. I don't need something that moves the other way and dampens the the drop and ultimately my returns. So do you think that some people should be looking to construct a portfolio that moves in opposite ways at certain times? I think it depends on your temperament as well. Because some people, if you have a crash and you see that you've lost like, I don't know, 50% of your life savings over the last three months, some people would really be badly upset by that. Mm. Other people say, look, I knew this was a risk. I'm happy with it. And I'm still feeding it. That happened to yeah. me last year and I bought more. Yeah, when, just, when crypto, well, crypto exactly crashed like 80, right. 80%. And I'm like, discount, let's go. Thing and everyone's looking at me like, you yeah. idiot. You're going to lose more money. I'm like, we'll see next year. We'll see, well, hopefully. <laughs> but yeah, like I, I, see, I see a dip. I, I always buy the dip. It, it's the one good thing crypto did was it, it made people harden to downturns. Yeah. Like, you know, what's 10% in yeah, the markets? Look, when that's good. You see 10% a day in crypto. But like, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot you can learn about about investing from from crypto like you know you can see the entire trading book you can see how bid offer works all of that stuff you can learn from crypto so it's good from that point of view mm. but i think i think i think the important point is that if you're going to be doing the asset allocation what are you investing for if you're young then diversification doesn't matter as much like you say because you can weather the volatility I, I fully subscribe to your narrative of, of the global index, all of that stuff. What I want to talk about now is other things that people might want to bolt into that. So how do you see bonds fitting into a person's portfolio? Now, I'm really excited about that because, you know, I think bonds are sexy and they weren't until recently. Yeah. You know, the interest rates were zero. Who the hell wants a bond? But now we're talking about 5% return for almost no risk lending money to the UK Better than government. Better in a savings account. Yeah. Yeah. And higher returns or a money market fund, which buys these short-term government bonds and some other fixed uh, fixed income instruments. Just for the people who don't know, can you just give us a one-liner on what a bond is? So you pay 100 today, you receive a fixed amount, a coupon for a fixed period of time, and then you get your money back. That's the way, that's the way it works. It's like an IOU. Like an IOU and it's yeah. got a maturity date. So you get your money back. And when you say maturity, you mean that's the day it ends and you yeah. get all your money back. And then it essentially dies and you just get your money back. And the and coupons are like interest payments yeah. along the way. And they're fixed forever. So once the bond is issued, those coupons never vary. So what's an example of a money money market fund? Uh, well, there's one from Vanguard, for example. There's one from BlackRock. And do they call them, they're just called money market funds? It's called funds. a money market fund. And sometimes it's called a short-term sterling fund. Mm. You know, sometimes they call Gilt, it that. maybe, or something. They could call it a yeah. short-term uh, or ultra-short How does it work? Fund. Well, all they do is they just buy the really short-term government bonds. So let's say you've got a government bond that was issued 20 years ago, and it's only got three months to run. So it's like the last, you know, last drags, last, last drags from a cigarette. <laughs> yeah. But that thing, the yield on it currently is around five percent. So you're almost taking no risk, lending money to the government by buying this bond. Yeah. It's going to generate five percent return, and then when it matures, the fund will just go out and buy another one. So that way, they kind of have a treadmill where they always give you this exposure. And if interest rates are going up, they pick up the higher rates almost immediately. So when the Bank of England hikes. You know, Andrew Bailey, thank you. It's going to give you a higher income. So it's not going to help the people who've got a mortgage, of course, but it's going to help save Cash savings. And it's giving you a better rate than you get in from a bank account. Yeah, savings because, banks, because they lag. They're at like three and a half, four percent maybe. When and if it's a call deposit, you know, if it's just a regular deposit account, they'll give you almost nothing. Because from their point of view, that's runnable money. That's that's what will ultimately potentially kill their bank. So, you know, they'll they'll give you an incentive to lock your money in for two years, three years, and give you a high rate for that. But for the call deposits, which is just a regular deposit, they'll give you nothing. And and people get upset about this. And there's a whole Treasury Select Committee meeting that happened recently where they were slagging off the banks for this. But I think you just don't understand why, why the banks have these mm. and they're kind of incentives from the bank's point of view. But yeah, so money market funds, very low risk, now a high return. Bonds, you know, if you're about to retire, you probably want to de-risk your portfolio. Yeah. So this so, is just watering down your equity, the stock position to reduce the, the likelihood of falling off a cliff just before you retire. And also, I mean, if you do these back tests, there are some brilliant websites like portfoliocharts.com where you can go and you can say, look, if I'd have had this portfolio 
what returns would I have had over the last 50 years? Or for any 30-year period, what would have been the worst return? And what's surprising about this is even portfolios which seem to have complete lame ducks in them do really well. So for example, the permanent portfolio is has got gold, it's got long duration government bonds, it's got short duration government bonds, which is kind of like cash, money market funds, and it's got stock. And stock is a fairly small proportion of it. But that actually does pretty well long term because you do get these periods when stocks underperform. And by not crashing completely during those periods, it does pretty well. Not as well as single stocks, but still it does perform quite well. Would you, you go on to? As I said, do you invest in gold? I don't. Yeah. Um, I, I haven't in the past. I don't really like gold because it's a wasting asset. It doesn't, it doesn't give you yeah. any kind of income. It doesn't multiply. Doesn't we had that discussion income. earlier, so I was wanting to see your, your yeah. perspective on it. And it's kind of like crypto in that sense because it doesn't do anything useful. You know, It doesn't produce anything which, which is useful for anyone. It does have some industrial uses, but it's not, it's not income generating. You have to pay money to store it. So, so it does have a place. I mean, if you look at 2020, it did hold up fairly well. Um, and in the recent crash in 2022, it held its value. So, yeah, I mean, it passes the crash test. When people are scared, they buy gold. But you think something like bonds or money markets would be a bit a bit better? Well, yeah. It's a return. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because, you know, if you're going to earn 5% with a government bond for almost no risk, you compare that with gold, which is very volatile itself. It introduces crashes into your portfolio. Yeah. And now that interest rates are higher, that's a really toxic environment for gold because of this logic. You know, it doesn't generate an income. It's volatile. Why would I buy that rather than government bonds, which very low volatility and guaranteed return almost. There's also the question mark of Bitcoin's eating its lunch a little bit with the younger generations and mm. whether there's going to be outflows from gold into into crypto. There's a lot of question marks there, isn't there? For the community, it? we've got yeah. this kind of simple model which prices gold based on the two things. One of them is interest rates, real interest rates. The other one is the strength of the dollar because commodities are priced in dollars. And for a long time, the value of gold was way below where it should have been based on the fundamental model. And a lot of people thought that was the reason. It was because okay. people thought crypto is a new gold. Now less people think that. I think. Yeah, they do call it di digital gold. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Similar, like you say, very similar store of value. You know, hedge against not, not limited supply. But, but I think I think a lot of the narrative around crypto. I think what's incredible about crypto is the narrative changes as people perceive it differently. So mm -hmm. it was seen as an inflation hedge. Nope, it's not because it crashed when inflation was high. It's seen as a good state store of value. Nope, it's not. Mm. Um, so it's hard to see what it is. They're trying to find a use case. Yeah, yeah. exactly. You find an AI thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's exactly. right. They right. attach it to the next bubble. Yeah. And the new bubble is, of course, AI. And Yeah, it was yeah. NFTs and web NFTs yeah, and AI. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, it's surprising to me. I, I, we're going to get back onto portfolio allocation, but want to hear your point on this. And I, It's surprising to me just how quick people are to jump to the next bubble. So we're fresh out of NFTs. And to me, AI seems very bubbly. It seems very um, everyone's chat GPT. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I use a bit of chat GPT yeah. in my workflow, and it's great. But you know, people are drinking the Kool Aid, aren't they, with AI now? <laughs> what do you think about it? Just I think, like all these things, if it's over, if you overpay for something, that's the mistake people make. So if you buy Nvidia now, Nvidia, yeah. well, that's the problem, right? Mm. You've overpaid for it. It's a great idea and it has to generate huge returns now in terms of in terms of the profits which it generates just to keep up with the price. Because what people forget is that the price of a stock has to keep in line with its profits. Sometimes it kind of gets ahead of itself like NVIDIA, but then ultimately it, it snaps back, back yeah. to some multiple. And if, if the earnings don't carry on increasing at an incredible rate now, unless they turn, a, and turn this into something hugely profitable, there's going to be a big correction at some point. So I think that's the problem with these shiny bubble syndromes. And I heard a nice description of this by John Authors, who used to be in the FT. Now he works for Bloomberg. He called it an echo bubble. People just remember all the previous kind of shiny balls. And, and they don't happened. want to miss out on yeah. the new one. They think this is the next thing. So I think that's the danger. People overpay. But you know, after a crash, I think that could be an interesting point to invest. Yeah. If there is a market crash, then yeah, find the themes you like and buy them. But at the moment, 
you know, my partner, Laura, she just, she just bought NVIDIA. So, you know. Oh, really? It was almost like a confession. She said. I did it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we have to talk. I've done something. Yeah. You know, well, I've got a tattoo on my house. I need to talk about so. And crypto on well, my nuts. Yeah, well, right. Yeah. No, but it, it was, it was interesting because she thought, well, it's just fun. You know, it's, it's volatile. It's, ex it's exciting. And it's, there's kind of narrative that goes with it. So I think that's why she, she wanted to buy it. Is she, is she a, a good investor or a bad investor? Or? Well, she always says she, she buys things that she feels in her waters. So, uh, so, <laughs> this is so good. So wow. we thought we'd call it the hedge fund. We'd call it Laura's Waters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good, good chances any, you know. Yeah. Yeah. We'll probably beat most of that's the That's right. Fundamental analysis. Yeah. Forget it. Yeah. The, Laura's feel waters. it in, in yeah. the waters. Can you guess what the biggest learning has been from doing this podcast or even my YouTube channel? It's that the most important investment you can make is in you. So for me, my path to real wealth isn't through investing, it's by building this business. And that's why I'm happy that we're working with Hostinger. Hostinger help entrepreneurs, freelancers and side hustlers with their websites. My favourite thing is their AI website builder, which helps anyone create a professional website with zero coding experience. You just describe your goal in a couple of sentences and the AI creates a beautiful looking website just like magic. You can then customise it, use the AI assistant to generate SEO friendly text and even use their AI logo maker. It's fast, user friendly and of course what I like the best is it's great value for money. You can get website hosting in a free domain from £2.99 a month. So if you want a website, then check out Hostinger. And if you use the code making money, that's making money all one word, you'll get 10% off. And I've left a link in the description for you. Before I became a creator, I was a sales guy. I mean, I love selling. It's how I rebuilt my life after some wrong turns in my 20s. I also delivered Chinese takeaways on the side, but that was more fun money so I could go out on a night without feeling guilty. Sales was where the real money was at. And one tool that I found really useful was LinkedIn Sales Navigator. It's a sales intelligence platform that helps you identify and then get into conversations with high value customers so you can drive more revenue. You can use it to look for key signals like recent job changes, so you can find buyers who are most likely to convert. And because they've got a billion people on the platform, I mean, the chances are your targets are going to be on LinkedIn. Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date, first-party data so you can get into conversations with the people that matter. So if you want to give Sales Navigator a try, you can get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash upsell. That's linkedin.com slash U-P-S-E-L-L for a 60-day free trial. With the bonds thing, you're saying that they're now sexy. How do people know when they're not sexy again? Is it solely just interest rates are going up, so bonds are, the returns on bonds are going up? If interest rate starts coming down, the, the return on bonds will go down. Is, is it's that not that simple because no. what's uh, there's an extra dimension with bonds, which is mm. the time of the time that you lock in the rates, which yeah. are fixed. Okay, so if interest rates are increasing, you want short duration. These, these instruments pick up the higher interest rates really quickly, and they don't lose value as much if yields increase. Whereas long duration bonds get completely slaughtered. So in 2022, those long duration gilt funds lost more than they've ever lost, ever. Even if you can do back tests that go back 100 years and simulate them, there's never been a worse fall. So that, that, that's long duration is not what you want if rates are increasing. You don't want to lock in the rate for a long period of time. But when rates are falling, so let's just think forwards now to something like, I don't know, one year, two years from now. Inflation's going to be falling. Uh, rates will also be falling because it's likely the Bank of England is going to be cutting the short-term interest rates. And if that's the case, you want to lock in those high rates for longer. So suddenly having long duration makes sense. So at it's that similar point, to a mortgage in a way, how people might think about the interest rates on their mortgage. Yeah, because it might be a comparable, you know, like, should I fix it? Is it variable? Except is you're it? taking the other side yeah. of the trade this time yeah. around. So if you're receiving income, what you want to do is to lock that in for as long as possible if you think rates are falling. So that's what people will probably do. Certainly the pension crafters are going to do. So you that. would go longer, you go longer on the current rates to lock them in because you think they're probably approaching the peak. So rates. instead of a money market fund, which yeah. almost immediately pick up the lower interest rates, you'd, you'd buy a 10-year bond, a 20-year bond, because once you buy one, the coupon's fixed forever for the life of the bond. So that's why they'd become more attractive. So that's what you'd buy. And you know, so it really depends on what you think is going to happen to interest rates. 
and how your thoughts are different from what the market thinks. If people don't want to have that decision, no, because like a lot of people, you know, we're telling people buy a global index, you don't have to think about it. And then when you talk about bonds, you, you, you predict in interest rates, basically. You, you do s- have to think about it. Yeah. So you do have to have some kind of view. But for other people, like let's say that you want to to retire, okay? And then you want to buy a car every five years and you want to go on a holiday at this point in time and your daughter's going to get married in a year's time. Okay, so all of these events have cash flows that go with them. Wouldn't it be great if you had something where the money would pay out just in time? You'd know to the penny, to the day, how much you're going to get paid. Oh, that's a government bond. Yeah. So let's say that it's got a 5% uh, yield. You only have to put 95 pence in for every pound that you receive. So my daughter's wedding's going to cost, I don't know, how much do they cost now? 30 grand? I don't know. Uh, you'd only have to put in 95 pence on the pound if the yield is 5%. Yeah. As long as you know when it's going to occur, you can plan almost perfectly. You can get that guaranteed return. Yeah. Yeah. So I think for those planning purposes, it's really useful. And everyone has those. You know, if you're young, you still have to plan for this stuff. Yeah. You want to buy a fancy car, you want to buy a house, um, all of this stuff you can plan for. So I think that certainty is invaluable because yeah. with stocks, you don't know what's going to happen. You know, it's so uncertain. You don't know what cash flows you're going to get. You don't know what it's going to be worth. It could crash just as you need it. And that uncertainty is a real problem. And a certain 5 6% return is quite a nice return, isn't it? Especially if you're saying, I need that in two years and that's money to get married with or whatever. So, you know, that fitting it in that, frame it in that sense from a portfolio allocation of, see the bonds as a sure return and maybe set it towards a shorter term goal that I need in the future. Maybe you don't need to be predicting interest rates. You just go in, I want 5k on 5% on my 10k in two years. And there's no prediction involved. Yeah. So when I did buy a single gilt about, I think it was in March and I bought an inflation linked bond as well, just to show the investors in our community how to do it. And it, I learned a lot from it. Um, the link has been a wild ride, but the, the government bond, you know, I know exactly how much I'm going to be paid and, that certainty has been so valuable. I saw the process of you going through it. It was like you had to yeah. do send smoke signals, basically, didn't you? It was very <laughs> antiquated. Like you got a piece of paper and stuff. And, and this poor lady at the other end of the phone, she had to read out the, all of the, the stuff code about the trade. Given yeah. her. I was like, I couldn't follow it. Like I watched that video. It was really, it, it just shows how archaic that kind of process is. But I was just listening out for a certain phrase, which she was going to say, which was dirty price. I knew what the dirty price should the have dirty been. dirty price. That sounds interesting. Oh, I thought you liked it. Tell me tell me more about this dirty price. <laughs> I was looking out for this dirty, dirty price. price. <laughs> but once I heard the dirty price and I knew it was right, I knew that was fine. The dirty price is just what you pay. So there's a clean price, which doesn't have the accrued coupon in it. And there's a dirty price, which does. But uh, for, for bonds, I think there's a whole language that goes with it. And this, there's this extra dimension, which is a time it's going to lock in the mm. rate for. Where do you buy your bonds? There are certain platforms in the UK where you can, uh, if you buy single bonds. If it's a bond fund, you can buy that pretty much on any platform. There'll be ETFs that give you the exposure. What do you think is better, bond fund? Obviously not better, but like, what's the difference, bond fund or like individual bonds? The big difference is the loss. So let's say you buy a government bond and you pay a certain amount for it. You know what it's going to yield if you hold it to maturity. With a bond, you never sell it. You don't have to sell it. Yeah. You can sell it. You don't have to. You just wait till it matures and you get the money back. Yeah. That's the beauty. You never face the market again. And that's very different from an equity, which is a perpetual instrument. It never never matures. So for the bond, you know what you're going to get and you have complete control over whether you sell it or not. Compare that with the bond fund where the manager has a portfolio of bonds. If money comes into the fund, he has to buy more. If money flows out of the fund, he has to sell them. So you don't have the control over that. So let's say we go back to 2022 when there was the biggest fall ever in bond funds. And if you had a long duration bond fund, you'd have just had to take the hit. You know, you don't have to sell it, but you'd have had a mark to market loss. For someone who's got a single bond, you don't care. Yeah. You, you don't even look at it. You don't even yeah. look at it. I knew what yield I was locking in. Maybe it was 2% and it was lousy, but am I, am I going to have a loss? No, I just hold it to maturity, make the 2% reinvested at a higher rate. So that's the big difference. It's the control. Could we talk about REITs now as in the next component that we could add in? Because I think, you know, people go through their investing journey. They, they get the stocks. They, they may or may not consider bonds. The next thing is they hear that they can hold property within an ISA. Do you think people should have exposure to REITs? 
What in the world are REITs and uh, how, how do you spell it? R-E-I-T, Real Estate Investment Trust. It's a way to buy property or commercial property. I mean, you can buy residential as well, but you're basically buying a company that buys lots of property. So it's property and take, So you've got like a percentage of the property. Of the, Roman, I'll, let, like you, I'll let you explain. Well, the way it works, right? I mean, there's kind of tax benefits for, for REITs, but the deal is, let's say the three of us were going to start a REIT. We'd get commercial funding. You know, people would give us their money. We'd may have maybe, I don't know, 100 million to invest. We'd go out, we'd find a property or a group of properties. We'd buy them. The deal is we'd have to pass on 90% of the rental income to our investors. And in return for that, we don't pay corporation tax uh, so, so for that income. And there's also a kind of tax benefit for our investors. So it's a really very tax efficient way to siphon rental yield out of property and infrastructure to investors. So that's what a REIT is. But the problems with REITs really are to do with liquidity. Because if you imagine that we've bought, I don't know, three shopping centers, one problem is how much are they worth? You know, what is a shopping center worth? You don't know because it doesn't sell. So it's very illiquid. And then let's say that everybody starts pulling money out of our fund. Okay, we're going to have to pay them back. How are we going to do it? Sell a shopping centre. We have to sell one yeah, shopping yeah, centre. And if we've only got three, then we're stuffed. So that's the problem. It's a very liquid instrument with very illiquid assets. And so that a lot of them get gated when there's a crisis, which means they turn around to their investors and they say, nope. You can't take your money. They hold, hold all the withdrawals. They go Neil yeah. Woodford on you. Yeah, Neil yeah. Woodford. Well, it yeah. happened recently with BlackRock, for example, yeah. which had one of these uh, REITs, which was a huge one. And there was a crisis and and people, it was gated. You know, So that was made, it makes a lot of people angry. You know, where In a down market, especially, you can see the value dropping and you can't sell it. So just be aware of the liquidity problem. Don't think that it's like fixed income because it pays you a high income because it's not. The volatility is usually like equity, i.e. it's quite crashy. If you don't believe me, just look at um, land, which is a UK uh, REIT. And uh, that, that just crashed hugely in 2008. So it's very volatile. Usually it's got specific exposure to one country. So or one type of property. One type of property. Mm. It could be office space, for example, which mm. at the moment, clearly not very popular. Yeah. Um, just like out of town retail again, just like any other money. investment, exactly. there's no entry levels. You could just you could put quid in them. As long as you can afford the share price, and now they've got you know fractional shares. If, you know, if you yeah. if you rent and you want exposure to property, but you can't afford a deposit, you can get exposure to property and the fluctuations and the ability from rent through a, through a REIT. How do you think? Do you think people should be thinking about? I own a home that is part of my portfolio. By buying a REIT, I'm overexposing to property. Do you think that people should think about that? Well, domestic property behaves very differently to commercial. Yeah. Commercial is very cyclical. Yeah. So let's say you've got exposure to shopping centers in America. If America goes through a recession, you're stuffed. Mm. You know, you're going to lose value on the rentals and you know the price will go down a lot. So I think it's important to know that you can diversify REITs. You can get regional ones. You can get global ones. You can get sectoral ones where you just buy one sector. Um, so just understand what's in it and what you're buying. And that's not as easy as it sounds. You have to really read in through the document documentation for the fund to know what you're buying. Do you so, have any REITs? I have one actually, which is uh, Big Box, which yeah. is which is the one that buys these massive Amazon, like you know the great yeah. box on the motorways. Oh yeah, the big big ones. That's right. That's oh, right. It's that... been a cat catastrophe in terms of investing, but yeah, yeah. It's, it's 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 giving a pretty high yield. I got yeah. a bit of realty income as well, which I think yeah. is like the the OG, isn't it? The the big boy. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the big game. It's like the the big one. But yeah, I mean, I have. I'm like you. I have different portfolios where I experiment and. I don't talk about them too much because my job is to talk about this. So it helps for me to have yeah. irons in the fire, yeah. if that makes sense. So I'll have a dividend portfolio, I'll have some speculative growth, just so I can keep a you know, look on the market. And within my dividend portfolio, I think I've got realty income and a few others and it's doing terribly. <laughs> <laughs> it's all doing terrible. But usually your house, I mean, if you buy a buy-to-let, a lot of the people I speak to, they have buy-to-let. It behaves kind of like an inflation-linked bond because it provides you an income. It's fairly safe. You do get some capital growth. Usually it keeps track with inflation, but not a lot more. But, but, but that's what it gives you. It's like a bond. So if, the, if you do have a big buy-to-let portfolio, it's kind of like you've got your bond allocation already. But of course, it's illiquid, it's expensive to trade. So it has lots of tax inefficiencies. You know, there are 
buy to let isn't a kind of no brainer, I don't no. think. Especially but if, not now. But if you do have it, and I speak to people who retired and they've got a pretty good income that comes from buy to lets, then they can take more risk with the rest of their portfolio. If it covers their income, then yeah, you can buy more equity and maybe leave more more for your kids when you pass away. When with the um the REIT thing as well. If you're buying a global index fund, you'll have REITs within that anyway, won't you? Because they're listed. A lot of them have yeah. REITs in them. Yeah. So, so you're already getting would, the exposure through the global fund. You would have some. Yeah. yeah. And they trade on an exchange just like stocks. Yeah. So they're very similar in that sense. I want to talk about you in a second because I think you're a bit of an enigma online. So just really? don't, yeah, I just don't, yeah, I just don't think we get to see you in Pension Craft and you do shine your personality through there. But I think... You know, I want to talk about your story and the jump you made because I think you did that well before being a finance YouTuber was a thing that people yeah. thought you could do. So I want to get into that. But the key takeaway for me from this is that you've worked in this industry in a, the cult of alpha where people spend all their time and effort trying to beat the market and you've come out of that. And now you personally just have a global index fund as your, your base thing and that does everything you need it to do. And then everything else is just strapping on complexity and... Uh, risk or you know risk of you making a bad decision basically but you yeah. do it for a bit of fun yeah would you say then that, that that's a good takeaway for someone that a global index can be just enough yeah i mean i speak to some people who do have like these permanent portfolio where they've got gold they've got bonds they've got stocks because they don't like the crashes but if you're willing to ride out the crashes yeah i think that would work pretty well just having global equity and by not riding out the crashes by by reducing them you are reducing your overall return as well aren't you because you you're dampening it by, by by squashing the the volatility you also squash the total return i would imagine yeah but not as much as you'd think really? and that's why it's worth looking at portfolio charts because one of the portfolios that the guy who creates it uh, has made is called the golden butterfly because it's got five allocations and it looks a little bit like a butterfly when you plot the uh, pie chart, but it does pretty well. And he's got something called an ulcer index, which is how much things crash and how long they stay crashed. So if it crashes okay. for a long time and it crashes a lot, you get a lot of ulcers. And this is really low on the ulcer index because there's always something that doesn't crash in the portfolio. So just play around with it. I'd say, you know, just try these different allocations and see which one suits your goals best. Uh, but yeah, I think, I mean, I speak to people in Australia, for example, and they actually warn that the risk of owning bonds long-term is that they underperform. So that's the risk, underperformance, not having enough risk yeah. long-term. So if you don't have enough equity, you will underperform probably, but it's not as clear-cut as you'd think. No. That's why the back tests are interesting. Yeah. And, but for someone looking to start today, you can, you can grow into this, can't you? You can get your global index and then over the years, play around with a little bit of bonds or set up your other portfolios. If and you're investing for a long period of time, yep, yeah, absolutely. If you're 20, uh, yeah, that makes absolute sense. But everyone has a different horizon. Yeah. So that's the most important thing when yeah. you're determining the allocation. And if, you know, if at retirement, say, would there not be an argument to stay 100% equity if we're going to be living till 90? Weirdly, no. Um, again, if you do the back test here, if you imagine the amount of money you have over mm. your over the course of your life, you know, you most people start out with very little and then you kind of build up to a peak and then you retire and then you eat what you've built up yeah. and it dies back. So it's kind of like a shark's fin. Yeah. And the point at which you're most sensitive to a crash is when the shark's fin is at its peak. Yeah. So that's why people de-risk just before retirement, maybe five years before. Because what you don't want, let's say you're 100% equity, let's say there's a 50% crash just before you retire. Well, Pretty you've got sure. to eat, right? Yeah. You can't go to budget and sell. say, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, can I just defer this? So you have to eat. So what you do is you de-risk just before, maybe five years before. And if you think the crash will last, I don't know, five years at most, until equity recovers, then you set aside five years of income and you can live off the low risk stuff, money market funds, cash, you know, those are the lowest risk, maybe slight duration in your portfolio, seven to 10 year government bonds. And that way by living off the safe stuff first, you have, have the best returns. Because what what's you, it called when you're kicking your portfolio when it's down? I can't remember the term. Basically, well, if, if you crystallize a loss, yeah. If you if you take them in that initial period, though, it's, it's called really, sequencing risk. Sequencing risk. So it's really what's damaging, weird isn't it? is mm. the same crash in year one of retirement 
has a much bigger impact on how long your money lasts than say halfway through or yeah. towards the end. So that's why it's sequencing risk. Yeah. So, so it's about protecting those first couple of years. Exactly. And could you just do that by having cash reserves? Yeah. I could have three years worth of cash on hand. Yeah, cash would work. Because that is de-risking. You you have a portion of your portfolio in yeah, cash, yeah. essentially. Uh, so having cash-like instruments yeah. like money market funds yeah. or, or, or short-term government bonds. Yeah. yeah. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you so much for that. Nice. I would, I'd like to have a brief chat now just about you because I'm fascinated, if that's okay. Really? Yeah. Number, yeah. One, number one fan. He's got a big poster of you in the room, honestly. He prays to it every night before bed. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I, I, I'm a full-time finance YouTuber. I worked in the finance industry and I left what was a high paying job to, to roll the dice. But you put the feet in the snow first, if that makes sense. So I knew that it was possible because of someone like you. There's you and then there's probably meaningful money that would say we're trailblazers. I know Pete. Yeah, yeah. yeah Pete, Pete Matthews is a great guy. I love him. <laughs> we speak a lot. Yeah, he's he's a lovely guy. Um, why? Can you why you left the city for you know making videos in your spare bedroom? Well, like I say, I was part of the business university when I was at mm. the bank, and you know I became a strategist later on and. That was great fun and I learned a lot, but the most intense, most enjoyable period was when I was teaching finance. So everybody has an exit plan in investment banking. You know, you take, speak to people in the pub and they say, oh, I'm going to be a carpenter or, you know, I'm going to be a singer. And they're often really talented people who have a, have these other strings to their bow. And that, I thought that that would be my exit plan. You know, I'd, I'd probably go into teaching and creating something like pension craft. I thought it would be more geared towards professional investors. But as it turned out, I think retail investors, the greatest need was there. But yeah. I didn't know it was going to work. And for a long time, it didn't work. And you know, my relationship suffered as a result of that. So it was a very difficult time. You mean you split up with your partner? Yeah, yeah. So I mean- Because I, of the I, channel? Yeah, yeah. I, I got divorced. And um, you know, clearly, I went from being an absent dad who'd get up before dawn get back in bed after dark. Sometimes my partner didn't, didn't even see me. I went from that to full-time working at home where it wasn't a proper job, right? I mean, it wasn't seen as a job. And I can see why, you know, I'd have been a pain in the ass to live with because uh, was, there was a lot of stress getting the channel working and getting everything off the ground. So there was a long period when I just didn't get many views and I just didn't think it was going to work. And I thought, well, I'll just give it a bit more time so it was like anchoring, right? You think, mm. you think, oh, I'll just let it turn around. And it didn't turn around quickly enough uh, for my partner to be um, kind of happy with sticking with me. Well, look at you now. I was about to say, yeah. 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 look at me now. Look at me now. Yeah, but there was no ill will. You know, I think no. it was just, I understand why, why, why she, she wanted to leave. But yeah, and it was interesting because I had a chat with Pete Matthew early on. And he said, yeah, great idea, but nobody else has managed to make it pay. How long were you plugging away for? That was about two years of that. Two years. Before. So I got so, my second ever video got 400,000 views. Yeah, well, for me, it yeah, took a lot yeah, longer. That was like it was a, basically my mum watching the videos initially. So. I think, I think did, did you watch much YouTube prior to it? Not really. I no. did. And I think there's an element of like knowing the platform. So I knew to do like long tail keyword research and to target investing for beginners UK 2020. I was like, that's an underserved keyword. Like I, I had that strategy. I've seen you have um, started to refine your thumbnails recently. Yeah, well, because really our video editor has started, he said, oh, well, I could do that for you. Yeah, yeah. So I said, and, oh, and okay. they've improved and, yeah. and they are better. <laughs> like, I mean, there was, a, there was a certain like, like, Charm of your old ones. That's a polite way of yeah, putting it. Yeah, yeah, they were budget. I mean, we've all been there. Mine aren't perfect. Thumbnails are like this constantly moving science. Yeah. I saw that you've you've changed that, and I was like, oh, there, there we go. That's there's, that so much, there's so much doom porn out there. there are, mm. You know, people. If you put, if you put the word crash or you know crisis into the title people of a video, everybody clicks on it. Yeah. But at a certain point. You know, you've got to stop lying because, yeah. you know, markets don't crash most of the time and it stops people doing the right thing. So yeah. there's a kind of trade-off there. Oh, 100%. And, you know, it would be very easy for me to, to yeah. go full on negative all yeah. the time. But I actually think you you build the audience that you want in a way. Yeah. And, you know, your content will attract people over time. It might not explode. And I think that that can give people these false positives. And then before you know it, they're pseudo conspiracy channels where yeah. everything is awful. Whereas I've like lent into behavioral finance and no one really does that. And I read the academic papers and I say this. And over time, there's, I've grown an audience that like that kind of content. So yeah. I think, you know, it's like the hair and 
the turtle, isn't it? You yeah. might not race out, but you'll build an audience of people who are loyal, who like the content. And, you know, I love your content. Well, I know when people don't like it. <laughs> you mentioned it a couple of it's times. Great. It's great. Sometimes like, I'm about to make a video, I see you, drive, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> like, he's he's going to do it better. And I'm just not going to touch that now because people just go, oh, you just copy and Robin. Oh. I remade the life strategy funds on Invest Engine once. And then oh, really? someone come in and was like, yeah, Robin did this better. Like, oh. <laughs> they just deflated in his room. Oh, that's so harsh. Crying I, himself I gave, to sleep. I gave them... I gave them like full-on story and narrative, yeah, and they just didn't want it. Oh, they just wanted you going. Like oh this. dear, watching to graphs, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> this graph above my head, yeah. <laughs> no, thank you so much, and thanks for sharing about the breakdown of the relationship. I don't think people realise that YouTube is hard. It takes a lot of um, effort and time, and within a family setting everybody almost has to sacrifice for the channel because it's all all consuming. Well, now we've got the community, it's much harder because you have to kind of service the community yeah. as well as servicing the channel, producing yeah. new content. I mean, one kind of feeds off the other because the channel, uh, the ideas for the videos comes from the community, the questions they ask, which, you know, I mean, you just had a question and answer session. Yeah. It really inspires you to produce, you know, new content, but also to get into the minds of your listeners. So I think having that rapport is good, but it is a lot of work uh, kind of maintaining a community. Yeah, well, I, I say like my, my boss's public opinion of me, which is like a, a very different concept for a lot of people. Most people have like one person that they might report to directly and that'll be the person that keeps yep. them up at night. Yep. Whereas we, you, you feel like responsible to the needs, wants and almost the financial success of hundreds of people, even though you don't give advice you feel accountable, don't you, for what you say Absolutely. and what you do. And the th like you say, you, you talk about something, people do it, you know. Like and you've got to be so careful. Like mm -hmm. I made, made a video about money market funds and the risks. And a lot of people sent an email to me saying, I sold my money market fund. And I thought, no, 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 that's not <laughs> I what didn't I tell you to do that. <laughs> I was just talking about the risks. Yeah. So I think you've got to be so careful. But then there are certain times when people feed back how much you've changed their life. Yeah. And it's just one of those groundbreaking moments in your life, which if, gives you goosebumps. If people, if people recognize you in the street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That? It was so cool. Cause I went out with my partner, Laura's grandson and uh, we were going to Pizza Express and somebody recognized me. They came across the street and oh, said, I think you're a oh, Yeah, so that's right. That's especially so YouTube, you know. Yeah. So that was great. Oh, I bet you're really cool to, to the kids. Until I started tutoring him in maths, yeah. Oh, was, no. I'm not so cool anymore. <laughs> we talk about trigonometry now. Yeah, well, so obviously we've we've mentioned what you do, but I just want to mention that you, you host your own podcast that's excellent. So it's me and Michael Pugh. He's yeah. my podcast co-host. He was a member of our community and now... We kind of host it together. And a lot of people are you surprised. You he was smarter than you. We never met him. He is <laughs> smarter than me. We never met. That's why Damien got me here because I'm, oh, yeah. I'm smarter than him. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. But so that's why this is it so different. You know, I've never met him and you two work side by side. Very different. Yeah, that's it. Well, we're we old, old school friends. One of the stipulations was I wanted it in person, mainly so I could meet guests like yourself. And I was like, yeah, you were a school friend? Yeah, we, yeah, went, we, we went, went to, to uni together. together. We went to uni oh, together. So I did my channel alone. That's all just me. And then when Will approached me to do the podcast, they were like, Get get you know a, a ying to your yang or whatever. <laughs> this is my yang. <laughs> we should get a little ying and yang t-shirt. That's cool. Oh, that is cool. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. I really enjoyed speaking no, to no, you. So Thank it's you. Our pleasure. Epic. If you want a summary of this episode with all the links we mentioned, sign up to our newsletter using the link in the episode description. And do keep writing in. We love hearing from you. So send us a question or tell us what you want us to cover in this season at makingmoney@kindling.media. Also, uh, while you're at it, remember to subscribe and please leave us a review. This is not financial advice. The reason it's not financial advice is because it's not tailored to you. Like we say a lot on the podcast, investments can fall and rise. In fact, this is almost a guarantee. Remember, past performance is no guarantee of future results, so your money is always at risk with investing. Also, remember other fees may apply. I'm Damien Jordan. I'm Tamina Carole. This episode was recorded by Jack Hobbs and edited and produced by Ruth Edwards. Music is by Felix Taylor. Our marketing director is Johnny Hunter. And it was all brought together by Will Stolomon. Quick question from me and the Making Money team. Would you like us to come into your workplace to teach you and your colleagues more about personal finance? It's an absolute joke that we're not taught what to do with money. And this knowledge gap makes most people much poorer over their lifetimes. Take your work-based pension. Most people have no idea what the fund they're invested in does. And plenty of people just opt out altogether. 
We can cover whatever is most important, from the basics to complex financial retirement planning supported by qualified financial advisors who are not there to sell you anything. We take different approaches for different people in a company depending on stuff like their age or their income. If you think people you work with could benefit from financial education, then please email will at getmost.co.uk. It doesn't matter what your role is in the business, we want to hear from you. So email will at getmost.co.uk. And I've left a link in the description for you. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app.